0: So, in my office, uh, I have um, some guppies, and by the way, if any of you want a guppy, I'm willing to give you any, because guppies have lots of guppy puppies, and I'm overflowing with guppies, and so, um, free guppies for everybody in the service today, just come by my office. Um, We started out with four guppies, and um, I have to periodically check the pH level in the water, and if the pH is one way or the other, I have to put little drops in there to keep the water the way that it needs needs to be. I keep a, 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 an aerator in there to make sure that the oxygen levels exactly the way it needs to be for those guppies. Um, every day I feed the guppies and I open the top of the thing and I put fish food in. And th- it's not a whole lot of trouble, but those guppies' entire existence is owing to the fact that I take care of them. If I were to just unplug the tank and walk away uh, from those guppies, it would take three or four days until we'd have a stinky mess in there. But every day when I feed the guppies and I go to put the food in, they all, ah, and run and hide. They all get under rocks and go and hide because they can't comprehend all that I'm doing to take care of them. To, to them, the sound of the, the tank opening, the, this huge... ...figure that's hovering over the tank... ...all of those things is horrifying... ...and so they go run immediately and hide. So... ...in a really weird way... ...that's a great analogy for... ...the way that we kind of live our lives... ...in the fact that God takes care of everything... ...that comes to us... ...if He stopped caring for us... ...we would cease to exist... ...and yet we're intimidated and afraid... Whenever he shows up, which is okay, because just like to those fish, I could take them all out and kill them right now if I wanted to. I could take the whole bucket and dump it out in the drop parking lot, and nobody would care. We are the psalmist said, "What are we to God that He would even consider us?" So let's take that on another, another level. Jesus is the one who died for us. He literally made our salvation possible. He was before god ever before there ever was any creation before god ever decided to create anything jesus was in fact in the the one of the church councils the phrase was used there has never been a time when he was not so referring to jesus that he's always existed he's always been And then for a brief period of time, for 33 years, he broke into human history. He was here. And so a lot of times as Christians, we can wrap our mind around the fact that he's God. He's like up there, right? When I think of Jesus, when that name comes to me, when I hear that name, what do you think of? And I think of transcendent. The king, I picture that scene that John paints where he's on the throne and the angels are around him saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. I can think that, I got that. But when I think of Jesus being so tired that he slept through a storm or being annoyed at his disciples because they can't get it. Right? I mean, when Jesus said, are you willingly ignorant? You know that in English what he's saying is, you are so stupid you have to work to be that dumb. <laughs> are you willingly ignorant concerning these things? Really? You're I, I a I, your pastor. I'm, I'm confessing to you. I have a hard time humanizing Jesus to where he's a guy that you would sit around and have a cup of coffee with and have a conversation with. And He is tired and He is aggravated at His disciples. And He cries over Jerusalem. I have a hard time reconciling that with the Redeemer. And one of the problems with humanizing Jesus is this. When we do that, if we're not careful, what we'll do is we will, we will remake Jesus in our image. right? If you go right now and Google Jesus, you're going to find pictures of Jesus looking very American. Because in our mind, we have to we, we have to bring things down to things that we can relate to. I remember when we lived in South America, there was a, uh, in the children's, in the kid's city, in the children's church area, when you walked in, someone had come on a mission trip from America and painted this mural of Jesus. And Jesus is huge standing there, and he's got little lambs all around him. But the Jesus that they painted had long flowing flock of seagull, blonde hair, and blue eyes. And I, I remember for hours at times, or I, many times I would stop and look what idiot painted a brown skinned, brown haired, brown eyed guy in a country of brown skinned, brown haired, brown eyed people? Painted him as a white dude with blue eyes. But to the person who painted that, they thought they were doing a ministry. And they were doing ministry. It was a beautiful mural. But in their mind, that was the image that they had of Jesus. And so we have to be careful as we humanize Jesus that we don't make Him just like us. Which is why, if you look throughout history, if you look at artist renditions of Jesus, they often look more like the artist than they do what a first century Jewish man would have looked like. The Jesus picture that we've all seen that's hung in churches all over the place is painted by a Flemish dude in the 16th century so he looks like a 16th century Flemish dude. So we have to be careful of that. In this particular story that we're looking at today we have a glimpse of the man. We see who he actually is in a way that very few other texts reveal. And so today I'm going to be a little bit more in teacher mode than preacher mode. The preacher's going to win out, I guarantee you, because that's just the way it always is. But today we've got to look and we've got to dig and we've got to see some of the finer points so that we can see this portrait of Jesus. And I've been praying all week for God to protect me from making Jesus look like me. But also I want us to see the man for who he was. Who was walking around in the Middle East who would have had dirty feet. He would have had been hungry and tired and he would have had a normal day and I want us to see him for who he is because the closer we can see the man Jesus the more we will love him. And the more he can speak into our lives so let's look. At that very hour. So Luke starts out at that very hour. So Luke thinks it's important that we tie the story he's about to tell with what he had just said. So we've got to back up a little bit. So excuse me as we, we back up into last week's sermon. And remember that Jesus told everybody there, strive to go through the narrow door. And then he closed that little sermon with this statement. When you, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, God will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out, And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who will first will be last. Remember, when we looked at this text last week, we saw that Jesus was asked a question by a young Israelite who said, Hey, are there just a few people going to make it to heaven? He was expecting Jesus to preach the same sermon that they had heard over and over again. It's just the Jews who are going to make it to heaven. That's exactly what he was expecting, and Jesus rarely gave people what they were expecting. And his response is, you're asking the wrong question, son. Instead of asking how many people are going to make it to heaven, you need to be asking, how are you going to make it to heaven? Amen. Jesus, for all practical purposes, saying, you need to mind your own business. And then he went so far as to say, there's a whole bunch of people who think that they're going to heaven who are going to find out that they ain't. And he went so far as to say that, you know what, there's people from the north and the south and the east In the West who are going to make it to heaven, and there's a whole bunch of people right here who ain't. And they didn't like that. That made them angry. Of course it did. He said, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be reclined at table with a bunch of Gentiles who ain't even from around here, and you are going to be outside the doors. They did not want to hear that. And so that made them mad. We rarely want to hear what's best for us. We rarely like it when somebody says, I know you need to mind your own business. You need to ask the question, are you going to heaven? And so they're angry. They're livid. So much so that as Luke moves forward, they throw this threat out there at him. So Jesus says, or Luke says, at that very hour, so that ties into what Jesus had just said, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. Now, if you think in your mind of what Israel looks like, the Jordan River cuts up. You've got the Sea of Galilee up here, the Dead Sea down here, and the, sea, the Jordan that cuts up there. Jesus has spent most of his ministry up to this point in that northern section of Galilee, up by the Sea of Galilee. He's now working his way down, and he's across on the eastern side of the Jordan in a place called Perea. So he is in Herod's governorship if you will and so when they say Herod wants to kill you this isn't an idle threat it's easy for us to read that part and just think oh you know it's kind of like saying um you know the boogeyman going to get you or something i mean that means nothing to us so i want us to remember who Herod is first of all you need to remember that Herod is the son of the man who was so wicked that he was willing to massacre babies to ensure that there might not be a threat against his kingdom. That was his daddy. His daddy, when he knew that he was near death, had all of the important people in Israel gathered up so that when he died, they would be executed so there would be crying in the streets. Because he knew nobody was going to cry over him dying. He was a wicked, vile, evil man. And when he died, his kingdom was split up among other people. Now, the Jews hated Herod because he was uh, half Gentile and half Sumerian, which is half Jewish anyway. In their mind, he had no right to the throne whatsoever. And so the, the Jewish people hated him, and Herod was a wicked, wicked evil man. Jesus was fairly used to his life being threatened. As you recall, we just said, when he was a baby, he, uh, there was an attempt made on his life. And then we read, read, read and preached through Luke chapter 4 where there was a, an attempt made on his life when he was preaching the truth. And in this case, these guys throwing out that you need to go, Herod is trying to kill you, is not some idle chatter. In fact, these very people, the Pharisees, and that very king, Herod, would eventually collude together and have him killed so this is not just somebody running their mouth now it's very clear that what's going on Jesus has said something that they don't like and they go you need to go you need to get out of here Herod's trying to kill you now I want everybody in this room to think for a minute how would you respond in that case you know that the pressure is really because of what you just said, but you also know that Herod absolutely has the authority to kill you. Jesus' response here is amazing. Okay, listen to what he says, and then we're, we're, we're going to talk through it a little bit. Jesus says, go and tell that fox, and let me stop here for fox, because when I hear fox, I think of the desert fox, or I think of... of uh, the foxes in cartoons that are wily and sneaky. And we kind of we hold foxes up like they're, 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 they're smart. They can, can get out of things. And the fox in the hen house, the desert fox, again, we kind of... But for a, a, a first century Jew, a fox would have been the equivalent of us calling somebody a rat. We see that in Song of Solomon when Solomon, in reference to a fox, uh, says... Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. The, the foxes would come in and they would tear up the vineyard. They would get in the hen house and kill all, the, all your critters. They were fairly easy to kill, but there were so many of them and they were able to get through little holes that are just exactly the way we think of rats. They would have been vermin. They would have been something that was considered obnoxious. Because if you really think about it, the only difference between a rat and a squirrel is the tail. But we, we think squirrels are cute, right? So it's just a cultural thing. And in this particular culture, Jesus calling Herod a fox wasn't saying that he's smart, he's wily, he's, he's cool. He was calling him a rat. He's something destructive. He's something that's sneaky and conniving. It would have been a terrible put-down. So Jesus says, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. Now, this is marbleized. This is uh, put in fancy language. Let me translate this into Gadsdenese for you, okay? Hey, go tell Herod, if he wants to get me, here's where I'm going to be. In fact, if he's feeling froggy, tell him to jump. Because I'm going to do exactly what I planned on doing. Nevertheless, I'm going to do what I planned on doing. He ain't changing my plans. I had to, Once I read this and it came clear to me what Jesus was saying, I had to go check commentaries. I couldn't believe what a clap back Jesus gives here. I mean, I'm thinking for a minute, I was kidding with Chad. I'm like, did I accidentally get my fan fiction from... Um, some some kind of movie mixed in with with the bible i mean jesus literally says to him oh herod really oh i'm scared to death why don't you give him my address because i'll be here and tomorrow this is where i'll be and then the day after that that's where i'm going to be and if he don't like it he can come on jesus bows up he throws it out there and i read that and i go yeah that's a man right there that's the way a man's supposed to act. Oh, Herod, he's big wig. Come on, biggin. Jump. I'm digging this totally. I'm like, yeah, this is the way I want this to be. This is my Jesus right here. I mean, he is in Herod's face, knowing that Herod has the authority to kill him, and yet says, Come on. You think you're a hoss? Come on. And clearly, the Pharisees. Get it that that's what he's saying because there's no more conversation. They all start looking at their shoes. The moment Jesus says, all right, you're on Herod's team, tell him to come on. They're like, oh, wow. Well, that didn't go the way we expected. (laughs) I was not thinking that was going to happen, so I got someplace I need to be. And it ain't around him. Luke now Again, remember we talked about that this story is not a biography, it's a narrative. It's someone telling a story. And so Luke shows us, in stark contrast, two sides of the man. The one side is here where Jesus is not intimidated by some guy's earthly authority. His response is, in your face, I'm going to do what God's told me to do, and there's nothing you can do about it. And then immediately he juxtapositions that with something that happens when Jesus stands over the city of Jerusalem. Because as Jesus is there, he's moved from Galilee, he's moved down to Perea, and now he's going to head to Jerusalem. We've read three times where it says and his face is set toward Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem. We know that Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. And everybody in this room knows exactly what's going to happen when he gets there. This Herod that Jesus dismisses, colluding with Pilate, colluding with these same Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, ultimately are going to have him killed. As he's marching there, Jesus stands over the city of Jerusalem. As he approaches it down from the valley, you come to an opening where it's just standing, boom, out in front of you. It's, It's a breathtaking view. As you stand there at the Garden of Gethsemane, you would, he, Jesus would have been coming down from, from Bethel, and you come out on that mountain, and Jerusalem is just laid out in front of you. Jesus stands there and says, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, oh that I could gather you together the way a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, and you are not willing Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Israel was who Jesus was sent to minister to. That city was representative of all the hopes and dreams of that nation. Israel, uh, Jerusalem is where God had established the, the city of David. That's the city where God put His temple so that the very Shekinah glory of God, after Solomon dedicates the temple, comes down and hovers over Mount Zion. And you could literally see the glory of God as it hovered over the city. The people would come from all over Israel and bring their sacrifices to that city. That city represented the wrath of God because where that temple stood was the very place where the angel of the Lord was striking down people and God stayed His hand. Represented The mercy of God where if I've sinned that is where I would take my sacrifice so it could be made You realize when every baby was born in Israel His mom and dad would have to travel to Israel and make a sacrifice for that baby Can you just think I mean I, How that must have wrapped up into that national consciousness If every time a baby was born you had to travel to Albuquerque, New Mexico To say that my baby was here Albuquerque would soon have be a special place, right? I mean, I've, I've shared with the church before how when I was a younger pastor and I had it all figured out, and I would say, all right, you, you know, we, we need to tear this carpet out and put new carpet there, or we need to move this stage, or we need to do this thing or that thing, and what do you think about that? And people would say, no, we ain't changing nothing. It would aggravate me. And I would hear about churches that, that were in buildings that were about to collapse and they had the money, but they wouldn't go someplace else because of that. And I, I that would just infuriate me. And now that I'm older, I get it. A lot more than I did then. In that, this room that we're in right now is just a room, right? It's sheetrock, steel, concrete, nylon, some other nylon. Wood and metal. It's just a room. There is nothing holy about this room. I don't, I don't even like it when people call the church the house of God. This building is not God's house. Your body is God's house. So there's nothing particularly special about this room. This room that we're in today with these blue chairs and the stain on the back where we had the water leak that runs down the side, and the creaky spot over here that Robert Smith always felt in. This very room. Yet I've stood right here a bunch of times while a man and a woman loved each other enough to where they decided to spend the rest of their life in marriage. stood right here. So that makes this room a place and I walk in those doors I think of joyful things I think of the marriages that started here I can think of the people who got saved right here or somebody else who got saved over here or that husband that we prayed for for so long that walked down that aisle and came right here and asked God to forgive him and his wife stood right back there and shouted amen when I walk in this room I think of the caskets that have sat right there. And how I've stood in this very room and been able to tell the people of God, that ain't her. That ain't Him. I've stood in this room while young boys from our high school brought... Flags in and put over the casket of one of their fallen friends. I've stood in this room while 150 kids stood right around this very altar and prayed that God would work in their life. This room is special. It's, there's nothing special about this room, but this room means something to me. Those of you that were born in the Catholic hospital or the Baptist hospital, how many times did you tell your kids when you drove by? It, hey, that's where I got born. I got born right there. In that building. Whenever we drive to Jerusalem, uh, whenever we drive to Jerusalem, <laughs> whenever we drive to Jerusalem, I probably need to back off the cough syrup. Um, <laughs> whenever we drive to Birmingham and we drive by the building with the balls on top, I go, hey, you know, and my kids all say, we know, we've heard it. All of those things wrapped up together would have been to a Jewish person, Jerusalem. It was where, when every baby was born, mom and dad had to go make a sacrifice. It was where, if you had gotten into an argument in your friend, with your friend and you decided to make up, you would go and make a sacrifice for offense. It was where you and your family would have traveled. And just as we read in the story where Jesus got lost in the crowd, doesn't that sound like every family reunion you've ever been to? Where's my kid? Ah, ah, William! You're walking around, there's kids everywhere, hanging from the trees, Right? So Jesus getting lost in the crowds. So I have literally been in classes where the, the professor gets up and starts talking about how, well, know some people read this text and think that Mary and Joseph might not have been good parents. I'm like, where did you grow up? Are you kidding me? All the family piled into the caravan coming back toward Nazareth, And oh, well, he's with his aunt Susie for the love. You know where he is. And then they finally realize after a day, oh, goodness, he's not here. And the panic that would have set in... We get it. Jerusalem was super important. And so Jesus would have known all of that in their hearts and then been able to. Jesus would have experienced that back for millennia. He knew what Jerusalem represented. And he stands out looking over the city and just is broken. Oh, by the love that he has for them. Oh, I just want you to reach out to me. Anybody in here who's prayed for someone who's running from God knows that feeling just a little bit. Oh God, please help them see they're just throwing their life away. Please help them see that they're committing suicide one drink at a time. Oh God, let them see it that multiplied by a thousand is what Jesus felt as he stood looking out over that city that represented so much lost opportunity and he just began crying and said oh I want like a mother hen to gather you up repent turn isn't it neat the way Luke puts both of these stories right there together on the one hand, we have Jesus being the manly man that I want him to be. I don't want Jesus as some wimpy Jesus. I want Jesus to be there bowed up at Herod. Come on, biggin'! But Luke puts them right side by side. We have Jesus standing firm. And then we have Jesus standing over those that he loved. I say, oh, why won't you just turn? And both of those are a beautiful picture of the man. Both of those should let us see just a little bit through the narrative, through the story, who he was. He was both a man who stood it and looked at pure evil and said, I'm right here, come on. And yet he was a man who could stand over the people that he loved and shed tears just longing for them to turn. Now, I could stop here. Some of you probably are wishing that I would. We could stop here and say, that is a neat picture. That helps me see who Jesus is. A little bit more, we we could sing a couple of verses of just as I am and go home. I see that hand and that hand. I see that hand. But remember when we were talking about how to study the Bible for ourselves, we always ask, what does it say about God? What does it say about man? And then finally, how does my life change in the light of it? And I, we need to see a little bit of the character of God as He looks at us. In Deuteronomy 32, we read this. But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, He encircled him, He cared for him, He kept him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. And so we see that God looked at Israel and said, I drew them out of the desert. They were the least of all people. I shepherded over them as they grew as a nation. They're the apple of my eye. He wanted them to repent, just like Jesus did. The Father said in Ezekiel, Say to them, he said to Ezekiel, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? In Romans 10, we read where God says of Israel all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Jesus, all of that is caught up in him at that moment with tears running down his eyes. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. But God today still looks at people. Notice the language that God uses here at Ezekiel. He's saying, turn so that you can live. And we've talked about, we think oftentimes in our head that sin is us being able to sneak away and do what we want to do, right? The real fun is over here. I heard someone say that a Puritan is someone that looks and sees somebody somewhere having fun and uses God to stop it. We think that sin is the fun stuff and God's just trying to us up in heaven going, Stop it. No, there's no fun. We're not going to do anything fun. But that's a very human view in reality it's the opposite we are committing suicide one day at a time when we sin when we do the things we want to do God tells us not to because he knows it's going to destroy us which is why God calls on his children Israel to turn and live don't you see it's kind of like every parent in here has had the experience where your child is at the mall and you're walking along or you're, here. well, let's just be honest here. When it was me, it was like, Ann's like, okay, I got to go in here and buy something. You got to watch these kids. And I'm like, oh, for the love. And so I'm sitting out in the, the open area of the mall and, the, and I'm sitting there uh, playing on my phone or reading or whatever and the kids are running around and I look up and, and the child has got like an old cigar butt in their mouth. And you try to take it away from them, and they, they go, oh, certainly, this is terrible. This is a horrible, nasty thing that I'm doing. No, you got to fight them, right? you gotta, you got to catch it. And then you've got to take it away from them. And when you take it away from them, what do they do? Ah! And they scream and holler because they wanted that nasty, disgusting thing that they were putting in their mouth. And you're, you're putting hand sanitizer in their face in case, before mom comes back because you don't want the and to come back and then smell cigar butt in their mouth. What is that? Oh, what have you done this time? We are just like that. We run toward things that are going to destroy us. That's why God says in Ezekiel, turn and live. The most obvious example of that is, I remember um, when I was in seminary, one of my professors was speaking on homosexual marriage. And the question was proffered and asked, do you think that, that a person who, who is homosexual, are they born that way? And I, I was curious to how Dr. Akin was going to answer it. And, and so I was listening to the radio show. It, was on, it wasn't on Christian radio. It was on just normal everyday talk radio. And his response was, absolutely, I think that they're born that way. And he said, I'm born naturally an adulterer. If left to my own, if I didn't have, was not hemmed in by the gospel, I would be an adulterer. I'd have sex with anybody but the Bible gives me guidelines. The Bible puts in fences so that I I can't do that. And Ann and I were talking about that afterwards and she, she, being a a woman and not being nasty, disgusting like all men, didn't really believe it. She's like, "That's, that's not true, is it? And I'm like, oh, it's absolutely true that we are disgusting and vile and evil. Now that I've been married for 20 years, 27 years, I can say that a marriage is much deeper and richer and more valuable and more beautiful than I ever thought it could be. And if I had ran around doing whatever I want to do, I would never know that. So God knows what's best for us. He gives us rules not because He doesn't want us to experience joy, not because He doesn't want us to have fun, because He knows that we will destroy our own lives if left to ourselves. And He tells us story after story after story after story in the Bible of people who run after doing what they want to do and what that gets them so that we know better. And God says, return, repent, live. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I like the way the King James puts that. God is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. God loves you so much that you can put yourself in the position of Jerusalem. He looks at you and sees the potential, all that you can be for Him. And He knows the depths of our heart. He knows us well enough to know exactly what areas need to change so that we can... Reach our full potential so that we can have more joy and happiness than we ever thought possible. So that we can have more of an impact on the people around us than we ever knew was available. So that God can use us in a way that would truly give us joy and happiness. And He tells us where those things are. He walks us through it in His Word. And yet, how often do I have to dust off my Bible before I read it? How often do I make an appointment with him that instead I watch TV? That TV show I don't even like. Why do we do that? Why do we sit there on Facebook and read a bunch of junk that that makes us miserable? Hey, you know what? People who are conservative are still conservative. People who are left-leaning are still left-leaning. They hate each other. There you go. There's Facebook for the next two years. No, we can repent. We can turn back to Him. We can come home. So look at that image of Jesus. That image of Jesus where He stood for what was right. He did what He was supposed to do. Even in the face of His life being threatened, said, I ain't worried about you. And that Jesus who stood over a people who would not repent, would not turn. Repent. Turn to him. In his hand are joys forevermore. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this image of Jesus that we see. I thank you. I just thank you that we get to see him as a man here. Lord, I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts, that we would change in the light of your word, God, I pray that we would fall more and more in love with you every day. In Jesus' name, amen.